Okay, well, you can be seated, all like six of you in the room. And I guess if you're at home, you can sit down too, I'll allow it. Um, We're going to be in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. So if you would open in your Bibles uh, to John chapter 11, I would love for you to to see the text. Uh, Even as I read it, I want you to see... um, the words of scripture for yourself. The power is in the word. The power is not in the preacher. The power is in the word. And so I want you to have God's word in front of you. I think it'll also be on the screen behind me, hopefully, as well. So John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. I will read the whole thing before we begin. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness will not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he, that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When Jesus had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit 
and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Pray, and, and, and they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What an amazing, amazing passage. And the way I want to title this message, Love, Words, and Power. And what I want us to do today is to look at the love of Jesus in this passage. Love shows up several times in this passage. The words of Jesus that are a bit confusing. And then also the, the tremendous power that, that Jesus uh, displays here. So my aim really in this message is that you'll actually feel for yourself the love that Jesus has for you. And that you'll embrace the words of Jesus to Mary and Martha and to his disciples as you would embrace them as words to you. That you would embrace the saving words of Jesus yourself. And that you also would personally experience the saving power of Jesus through his word today. So that's my hope. That's what I want to do over these next few minutes is press this text into your heart and mind. And for you to glory in the love, the words, and the power of Jesus displayed in this chapter. Uh, just by way of context, we have been working through the, the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John is a biography of Jesus uh, that he, one of his closest friends and closest disciples, uh, the Apostle John, wrote. And he wrote this later in life after the other three Gospels had been written. And in many ways, John's Gospel is unique from the other three in that he fills in a lot of gaps. It's almost like he, he read the other Gospels and went, there's still more to the story. And in fact, this Lazarus story only appears in the Gospel of John, which is amazing to me that the other Gospel writers, led by the Holy Spirit, did not include this story. And, and John, led by the Holy Spirit, was like, people have got to know this story, and I'm so glad he did. This is one of my favorites. But as we've seen through the Gospel of John, John has been making the case that Jesus is the Son of God from the Father, and that he alone is the one that saves, and that by believing in him, we may have eternal life. And what's been happening is that John has been unfolding these seven signs, and this is the seventh and greatest and uh, culminating sign. But each one of these signs, from the turning the water into wine to healing the blind man, there's six of them, and each one builds and ratchets up in terms of intensity, in terms of power, in terms of demonstration, in terms of evidence that Jesus is the saving Son of God. And it comes to, uh, at the same time, each one of those signs is met with growing hostility from the Jewish leaders, growing unbelief, growing threats. And, uh, and so you just see this tension building, building, building until you get to chapters 11 and 12. And it, basically everything reaches a breaking point. And in this sign, Jesus raises a man from the dead. And this is the point at which um, 
the opposition um, takes Jesus down. This is the point where his ministry has come to an end and now it's time for him to go to the cross. And so chapters 12, 11 and 12 are really the transition from Jesus' ministry into the last week of his life where he is going to lay down his life for sinners as an atonement before God and he will be raised again. So we're really at this crossroads, we're really at this pinnacle in the Gospel of John where things are at their most intense time. Uh, D.A. Carson, who is a, a commentator, a theologian, has, says, has said this, up until now, we have learned of the bread of life, the water of life, the light of life, and now in this last sign, Jesus himself is life. He is resurrection life. And, he is the anti- and there is an anticipation of this resurrection life coming through his own death. So here we are at the climax, really, of the book, of, of Jesus' ministry, and, and the turning point in which Jesus is now going to make a beeline for the cross and atone for the sins of the world. So I want to look at three themes in here. I've already kind of uh, uh, exposed them here. Uh, one is the, uh, the surprising intensity of Jesus' love. So I want to walk through this passage in just a moment and show you the surprising intensity of Jesus' love on a, mul- on a multitude of le- levels for a multitude of people. And then we'll look at the surprising, I'm sorry, not the surprising, the saving perplexity of Jesus' words. Jesus says some very strange, seemingly contradictory things in this passage, and yet it's his words that give life. It's his words that save. So there's this perplexity in Jesus' words, but they're also a saving perplexity that if we'll believe them, we will have life. And then lastly, we'll look at the stunning majesty of Jesus' power. And then we'll make a few applications. But just so you're able to follow along with what we're doing. So let's look first at the surprising intensity of Jesus' love. So first of all, there's seven, seven that I identify here. Seven facets of Jesus' surprising intensity of love. Four, seven things that he loves with surprising intensity. Number one, Lazarus and his sisters. Look at verse three. So the sisters sent to him, saying... Lord, he whom you love is ill. So Lazarus is on his deathbed, deathly ill. His sisters send a messenger to Jesus. They know Jesus can do something about this. Jesus is a good distance away. And what's interesting is the messengers, all they say that Lazarus isn't even mentioned. They say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And everyone knows who he's talking about. Jesus had friends. Jesus loved Lazarus. They could just come up and go, the one whom you love. And Jesus knew who he was talking about. Lazarus isn't even named, and yet Jesus knows who he's speaking of. Jesus was a phenomenal friend. I don't know if you ever think of Jesus as being a friend. What kind of friend would he have been? He's an an amazing friend. Look at verse 5. It says again, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So Jesus loves him. People knew Jesus by his love. And Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. And look at the beginning of verse 6. This is strange. He loves them so he stayed two more days. That's a strange thing to think about. That it was actually love that compelled him to delay. That's a very strange thing for us to understand. And wouldn't be entirely appropriate for us necessarily. I can just, if you can just imagine, I, you know, I've got the Moyers sitting here. Um, if just imagine a scenario where Melissa calls me 
And I let it go to voicemail and the voicemail says, there's been an accident, um, Hunter's in the hospital, it doesn't look good, come quickly. And let's just imagine that this kind of scenario played out. And, uh, and, and Hunter passed away that night and I didn't show up. And the funeral happened and the burial happened and where's Pastor Josh, he's not here. And then all of a sudden I walked up to the front door to their house. Imagine what Melissa and the boys would be thinking at that moment. I, it strikes me as amazing that at least in Jesus' case here, it is out of his love that he, in a sense, lets their request fall on deaf ears, that he delays. And we'll see why here in a moment. But this is a strange love. This is a strange love. That would be a terrible thing for me to do. In fact, you would want to fire me as, you pa- as your pastor, and, I, and you should. But Jesus, so, so just imagine what Mary and Martha are thinking when Jesus then approaches, and you can then understand why they would say, Jesus, if you had been here, you healed strangers. Why didn't you heal Lazarus? You healed people from a distance. You healed the official son from a distance, but you didn't heal Lazarus. So it's a strange kind of love. It's a strange kind of love wherein Jesus has something bigger going on here. And, you know, part of what Jesus is doing here would be very strange and maybe inappropriate for us to do. But I, I just want you to feel, can you just feel the intensity of this is, uh, of what's happening here. Um, it's just, uh, Jesus stays two more days before going because he loves them. It's a strange kind of love. Some of you maybe are in this situation right now. You've been begging God for what seems like a reasonable and loving request and you've heard nothing from him. I, I pray that this passage is an encouragement to you that the delay that Jesus or that God maybe has had to your request is not because he doesn't love you but maybe his delay is because he loves you. Maybe this is true for us in this COVID-19 wanting to gather as a church and wanting God to draw us back together, and it feels like we're delayed. But maybe it is out of love that Jesus is actually waiting. If you look at verse 35, we have another statement here where it says, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. So Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters. Jesus showed evident emotional love for his friends. Jesus loved deeply. So, this will make more sense as we go into this, but we have a strange, Jesus has this strangely intense love for his friends, for Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. But look at verse two, and this is part of what makes sense of what's confusing about the first part, is that Jesus also has a surprising intense love for God's glory. Look at verse four. When Jesus heard, heard that he was ill, he said, this illness shall not lead to death, does not lead to death, for it is the glory of God. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus is willing to go through and even, and even have, his, have people he loved go, go through painful things so that God may be glorified. He loves God's glory. This is why there's the delayed answer to prayer is because God would get more glory and they will have more joy by the delayed response. God lo- Jesus loves bringing maximum glory more than avoiding pain and sorrow. But Jesus also has a love for the disciples. Look at verse 11. Actually, look at verse 14. So, so 
Lazarus has fallen asleep. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about. Eventually he says plainly, Lazarus has died. And look at verse 14. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So Jesus is working on a whole nother level right now. He's delaying not just out of love for Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And he's not delaying just, he's delaying also for the glory of God, but he's also delaying out of love for the disciples. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there because I would have healed him. But the fact that I wasn't there, he has died and now he's going to be raised back to life and this is going to be for your good. So out of love for his disciples, he's delaying. Jesus is working on a multitude of levels. His love is getting complex and profound. He is doing far more than what was asked. He's doing something far greater than what was requested. Jesus has so arranged this scenario so that it will be an epic expression of love for God and for everyone involved. It's an amazing thing, the surprising intensity of Jesus' love. But look at number four, his surprising love for Martha's soul. So verse 23, Martha runs out to him, and I can imagine she's maybe a bit upset at him. If, if, my, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And yet then she also expresses faith. I know, I know that you could have done it. I know that you can do whatever God, whatever you want, uh, God will grant you. And then look at verse 23 and look what Jesus says to her. He says, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again on the last day. So she hasn't totally lost her faith that in the end she'll see him again. But verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And so he's offering Martha, in her pain, the offer of eternal life. He cares about her soul. And this has gotten her attention. This death of Lazarus has gotten her attention. She has run to Jesus. And there's a unique opportunity here that Jesus seizes out of love for Martha's soul to preach the sweet gospel to her. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. So Jesus offers Martha eternal life right here. There is Ecclesiastes 7.2 says that it is better to go in the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Most pastors I know enjoy being involved in both weddings and funerals, but there is actually, most pastors I know would prefer actually preaching a funeral to a wedding because there is a solemn intensity at a funeral that makes people uniquely open to the good news of Jesus Christ. At a wedding, sometimes the busyness and the flowers and the gifts and the presents, and it's a glorious time to preach the gospel, but there's so many distractions and there's so many things. But at a funeral, everyone is, is realizing um, that, that there is an end to, to physical life, that, that we do need to think about ultimate things. Is there a God? Is there an eternity? What is he like? How do we be rightly related to him? And Jesus doesn't waste the opportunity to preach to Martha's soul and to give her the gospel in her pain. But also, Jesus says, number five, Jesus' love for fallen humanity. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews that had come also with her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
Now, this is a strange word right here, the word greatly troubled. If you had different translations, they would try to do different things. This is a very difficult Greek word to translate. I won't even try to pronounce it, but deeply moved in spirit, greatly troubled here is actually literally to snort with rage. So we have the idea here of Jesus being kind of overcome with sadness, but it's actually, it's actually anger that Jesus ex is experiencing here. He, he saw them weeping and the Jews had come with her and he is snorting with rage in his spirit and greatly troubled. So think of a matador who's holding up a red cape in front of the bull, right? And the bull sees the red cape and is snorting with rage and wants to attack it. And that's the kind of feeling that Jesus has here. We see it again in verse 38. Jesus deeply moved came to the tomb. So why is he so mad? I think it's because the ravages of sickness and death on, on people he loves. I think Jesus hates what sin has done to the world and what sin has done to people. He is witnessing the impact of human suffering and death, the curse of sin, and he's angry about it. He's angry at how broken these people are because they're under the heavy curse of sin. They've experienced death and Jesus wants to just end it right then and there. Jesus is angry at what sin has done to these people. And so this is super comforting words for us is because some of you have been sinned against very terribly. And maybe you wonder where was God in all this? And Jesus snorts with rage at that. Jesus is angry at what has been done to you. But the other side of that too is that the sin that you've committed against someone else also makes him angry because he loves that person too. This is what makes sin so horrible is that we have no idea what it does to our world, what it does to ourselves, what it does to the people around us. God, because he is omniscient, meaning that he knows everything, the fact that he is omnipresent and sees everything, the fact that he is perfectly holy, only he really knows what sin has done to us. And it makes him angry to see that his image bearers, whom he loves, have been devastated by sin. And here we see Jesus deeply moved in his spirit, angry that death has come to people he loves. Jesus is full of justice and he wants to make it right. So deeply moved, he comes into these moments. Derek Thomas puts it this way, the Lord of glory is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. The sight of this pathetic scene of Mary in perhaps convulsing weeping before him, it angers him. He is angry at death. He's angry at what sin has brought into the world. It brought home to his consciousness the evil of death. So that's what Jesus feels about what has happened to fallen humanity and what has fallen on people that he loves so dearly. Jesus is so moved with love that he gets angry at what has destroyed the image of God, what has broken our hearts and our lives. Number six, there's a love for those who are grieving. He said, where have you laid them? Verse 34, and they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus knows he's about to raise him. He said that in verse 4 and 11. And yet, he's not in such a hurry to get it over with that he doesn't just stop and grieve. I think if it was me, and, uh, 
you know, I think as husbands, we do this often with our wives. We want to fix it. Let's just fix it. Why are you crying? What's going on? Like, why are we upset? You do this with your kids or whatever. You're like, let's just fix it. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus is not in such a hurry to fix it that he doesn't just stop and weep with them. He just is a human being with them, feeling what they feel, knowing that he is about to take it away, doesn't diminish his compassion and his grief in the moment. He's not in a hurry. Maybe you've had something really terrible happen to you. And some well-meaning Christians quote Romans 8, 28 to you. And they say, we know all things work together for good to those that are called according to his purpose. Now that's a sweet truth, but sometimes we just want people to weep with us. And, you know, Jesus comes in and he doesn't offer all the answers what he does with Martha a little bit earlier. But in this particular moment with all the crowds, he just weeps. He just weeps over what has been lost. He's about to restore it, but that doesn't take away his empathy. And he just sits and he weeps with them. Think about your own life. Maybe the purpose of Jesus is not to take away your pain immediately, but to weep with you and for you in it. Maybe Jesus isn't in as big of a hurry to have it over with as you are. Maybe he is offering an intimate connection with himself that you would never have access to apart from this event. Maybe he has a different priority than just making it all go away, but actually wants to draw near to you in it and experience it with you. And then number seven, we're spending a lot of time on this point, but I just, I just think this is such an amazing thing, but he has a love for everyone present. Look at verse 41. So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And so in his love, he is delayed. He's allowed all these bad things to happen because he wants the crowds to see and believe. He's working on another level. He wants to be publicly known and loved as the one who sent from the Father. And what's amazing is if you look in verse, uh, in verse 41, he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. So he already prayed for Lazarus' resurrection sometime in the past. He knows God's going to answer that prayer, and yet he reprays it publicly just so everyone will know what to make of what's going to happen. And they'll look to him and be saved. He wants them to believe and be saved. So Jesus has a surprisingly intense love for Lazarus and his sisters, he, for, La, for God's glory, for the disciples, for Martha's soul, for fallen humanity for those who are grieving, and for everyone present. We could go on, but let's move on to the next point here. And this is the saving perplexity of Jesus' words. Number one, look at concerning Lazarus in verse four. He says something strange. He says, this illness will not lead to death. And then in verse 14, he says, Lazarus has died. What is Jesus talking about? Is he lying? Is he confused? Why is it that he would say that this illness will not lead to death and then has to explain to them, his disciples, why Lazarus has died? I can understand why the disciples would be confused. You say he's fallen asleep. Well, that's great. Maybe he'll recover. He's getting good rest. And Jesus is like, no, he's died. Well, you just said he wasn't going to die. Is he contradicting himself? What he's saying is that Lazarus's death would not be the ultimate result of his sickness. When we think of Lazarus and what he, his sickness... We're going to think of his resurrection, not his death. 
death is not the end of the story. The illness will not get the upper hand. And so Jesus is speaking that death will not be the final word of this, in, this illness. Though he'll experience death, death won't have the final word. Concerning going to the dead, look at this in verses, uh, verse 11. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go and awaken him. The disciples said, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Jesus spoke to, of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his disciples, fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. So I can understand why Thomas would be confused. Okay, so Lazarus has died, and Jesus says we're going to go to him. Um, I, I would take that to mean that, and Thomas takes that to mean, I guess we're going to go die too. Because if Lazarus is where the dead are, and we're going to go to where Lazarus is, we must be going to our deaths. And ultimately, that, that's not what happens here, but ultimately Thomas does prove to be right. There does, is an ominous foreshadowing of the fact that, that Jesus will ultimately be killed for what's going to happen. What he's going to do with John is going to be the last straw and lead to his execution. And there is an ominous foreshadowing here in that all of the apostles except for John will actually die for their testimony of Jesus. What Jesus is about to accomplish is going to be the final straw that leads to his death and their testimony about the death and resurrection of Jesus is going to lead to their deaths. So in a sense, Thomas is not right in the immediate, but he is giving an ominous foreshadowing that they will also die with him and for him. According to tradition, St. Thomas here went to India and was in AD 52, was killed there. And so Thomas, in saying, let us go that we may die with him, while it didn't happen immediately there, he did ultimately die for his testimony of faith in Jesus. Concerning dying and not dying, Jesus says something confusing in verses 25 and 26. He comes to Martha and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So, which is it? Those seem like two opposite statements. If he believes in me, he'll die, but he'll live. But also, if he believes in me, he won't die. So will he die or won't he die if he believes? I think that Jesus is saying here, not that he's contradicting himself, but he's speaking of physical death in the first line. He's speaking of spiritual death in the second statement. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die physically, Yet he will live physically. Jesus will resurrect all believers in their glorified bodies one day. So believing in Jesus will not necessarily, will not save us from physical death. We may still have to walk through physical death. Um, even those who believe in Jesus, 10 out of 10 believers still die. That's the stats. 100% still experience physical death. But that's not the end. Just like as Lazarus, it was not the end. So also we will be raised physically. But spiritually, verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Spiritually. If you reject Christ, you're already dead spiritually and will remain dead spiritually for eternity. But if you live and believe in Jesus, you will never die spiritually. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And this is the gospel presentation that he's offering to her. He is saying, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? That though you die, you will live and you will spiritually, you will never die. 
And that's the question for us. That's the question we ultimately need to ask ourselves. And then look, number four, concerning his prayer to the Father in verses 41 and 42. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe you sent me. And so Jesus is saying here, he is trying to prove and to provoke. He is proving, this is the climaxing sign of signs. This is the ultimate evidence that he's the son of God. This is the miracle of miracles pointing to him being the authentic son of God. And he knows that this is also going to provoke the religious leaders to finally follow through on their attempt to execute him. In fact, in John 12, just one chapter later, verses 9 through 11, a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there. They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. So they not only want to destroy Jesus, they want to destroy any evidence of Jesus. So they want to put both Jesus and Lazarus to death so that they can be done with this. Um, If Jesus can just keep raising people from the dead, he's going to be a hard guy to defeat. So we've got to kill him, and then we've got to kill the man who gives evidence, the, the living, breathing evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. So the bottom line is that Jesus is Lord over death. Death is like sleep to him. He can wake someone up just as easily as you could wake up your child. Well, actually, maybe easier than you waking up your child for school. It is not an end. Death is not an end, but a means to glorious ends. And through physical death, though physical death may come, physical resurrection is assured. Do you believe this? That's the question to Martha, but it's also the question for us. Is Jesus' resurrection and life to you? Jesus did not claim to have resurrection in life or to understand secrets about how to get resurrection in life. Instead, he says he is resurrection of life and life. To believe in him is to possess him and to possess him is to have resurrection and life. If you are believing in Jesus, you have Jesus and you have resurrection in life right now. Which leads us to the final point and this will go the quickest of the three, the stunning majesty of Jesus' power. We see, number one, it's from the Father. He says that in 41. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said it on account of these people that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus wants the Father to get the glory. If you remember all the conflict in John up to this point about Jesus and his Father and who he's from and what authority he has, this is it. This is the final fulfilling proof that he is the approved Son of God. And his stunning majesty of the stunning majesty of Jesus' power over death. Jesus can, with three words, in fact, I think in Greek it's only two words, can command a dead man to come out. I don't know if you've ever gone to a seminary, cemetery, seminary, cemetery, same thing. If you go to a cemetery and just give commands, I don't know if you've ever tried that, say, hey, come on out. But Jesus, with his words, raises Lazarus from the dead. Dead eardrums, decaying body, life comes with Jesus' words in that the ability to hear comes with the words and the ability to obey actually comes with the words. Jesus creates life with his words and the word actually creates the life and that's why we preach the word of God. That's why the gospel must be spoken is that the gospel actually brings the life with it. 
And so we're speaking to dead bones. We are speaking to dead spiritual hearts. And the gospel itself brings the life and the obedience with itself. It's an amazing thing. Matthew Henry in his famous commentary has said that if Jesus, Jesus had to say Lazarus come forth because if he had just said come forth, all the dead in the world would have come forth. His words had so much power, he better direct it just at Lazarus because his word has such power that every person that had ever died would have resurrected at that moment. It's the kind of power that Jesus has in his words over death. And he has the ability to give resurrection life. And in this, we see a foreshadowing of Jesus' own resurrection. The stone moved and Jesus himself will emerge from a tomb to bring salvation. So, some quick applications. There's so much more that I would love to to, to share with you. I could preach for two hours, um, but man, it's, there's so many glorious things here, but just some applications for you here. Just think on this for a minute, that Jesus is thoroughly and perfectly human. Just think of the emotions that he experiences in this passage. He is a thoroughly human being, thoroughly and perfectly human in every way. He feels love and anger. He weeps real tears, he feels things deeply and therefore he is able to sympathize totally with us. He has entered into the entirety of the human experience and Hebrews 4.15 says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may, say, may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because there is someone sitting on the throne who understands, who understands what we've been through, who understands what's been done to us, who understands even better than we do what we've done and has his arms open wide, yet still loves us. Jesus loves you. Like really, really loves you. Like this kind of John 11 kind of love. The kind of love he had for Lazarus and, his, and, and all the people that are involved. This love that Jesus is showing in John chapter 11 is the love he has for you. Jesus has the kind of love that gets angry at what sin has done to you. Weeps with you when you hurt. Everything you see of Jesus in this passage is for you. Jesus is the kind of friend with this kind of love, with these kinds of words, with this kind of power for you. Secondly, Jesus prioritizes God's glory and your eternal good. That means we don't always get what we ask when we ask it, even if we think that's what God should do. Second Peter 3, 8 and 9 says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. <clears throat> if I were to ask you if you would rather have a million dollars today or one penny doubled every day for 30 days, which would you choose? Now, maybe you've heard this before. But the better choice is not the million dollars today, but the penny doubled every day for 30 days because then you would have $10.7 million. 
dollars. Perhaps, perhaps, the Lord is not slow because he's withholding from us, but perhaps he is working out a better return than we could ever imagine. Let us be patient. What if God is doing this kind of thing with his delay to your answered prayer? Maybe he's multiplying the return on your prayer. So let's not grumble. Let's give thanks that his delay is for our good. Saving faith, number, number three, saving faith means running to and trusting in Jesus in all circumstances. We see Martha and Mary both do that. I can't imagine what kind of frustration they would have had with Jesus. He heals strangers, but not Lazarus. What's up with that? Why the delay? Why not a note? Send a text, Jesus, something. And yet, despite all this, they run to him. They confess their frustration. If you had been here, he would not have died. And yet they immediately receive his word by faith. And that's what saving faith does, is even when we don't understand Jesus, we run to him. In fact, if we had a Jesus that loved us like this, and we knew that he was going to work things for our glory, why would we ever do anything but run to him? If, if this kind of Jesus loves us, and he's able to do these kinds of things for us, then he's worth our trust at all times. And then lastly, we are Lazarus. Lazarus was totally unable to give himself life. He was totally unable to overcome his sickness. He was totally unable to prevent his own death. He was totally unable to bring himself out of the tomb. And he was even unable to unwrap the clothes of death from him. We also, like Lazarus, are unable to overcome the sickness of sin. It's going to lead to our death, our eternal death. And we have no remedy for that in ourselves. We are unable to thwart the spiritual death that's coming for us because of our illness of sin. We were born spiritually dead in sin, wrapped in the grave clothes of death, and only the voice of Jesus Christ can give life. So right now, I hope that you hear the voice of Jesus in these words, that you need to repent of your sin, trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and hear his voice saying, come out. Come to me. Leave the grave and follow me. And if you're hearing those words, and you're feeling in your heart that the Lord is working, turn to him. The Holy Spirit give you life. I pray that you would believe in him. And when Jesus calls, we come out. And what's amazing is he asks all the other people around to help unwrap the grave clothes. And that's really what, we're made alive, but we need the help of other believers to remove the evidences of death from us, to help take the patterns of sin that are off of us, the smell of death off of us, the decay that is still wrapping. As Christians, we, we still live with struggles of sin. And Jesus calls these people to help Lazarus be released from sin. He's been made alive, but now he needs to be released from the grave clothes. And in that sense, that's what our brothers and sisters are for. That's what church membership is for. That's what life together as a body of Christ is, is that we're helping one another live out this new life and take the grave clothes off.
Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working, the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. So I pray. Let's, let's bow right now and let's pray. Oh God, we are in awe of Jesus from this passage. The intensity of his love, the saving power of his word, and the stunning display of his ability to raise the dead. And Lord, I pray that we would all admit that we're Lazarus. That we are dead in our sin and we can do nothing about it until you call us. So Lord, I pray that right now by your spirit you would call into the tombs of our hearts and that you would make us alive and that we would come out of our old life, we would come out of that tomb and we would want to be rid of all that we used to be that was displeasing to you. And Lord, I pray that you would surround us with believers who will help us take the grave clothes off who will help us remove the stench of the tomb, the stench of sin and, and, and lostness and death. Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough to call us out of darkness into life and to give us people to unwrap us. And Lord, help us to walk together and help one another. Help us to believe this gospel and have the resurrection and the life that you offer us. In Jesus' name, amen. you stand with us and sing? You give light, you are love, you bring light into the darkness, you fall, you restore every heart that is broken. Great are you,
hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. And all of the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. And all of the earth will shout your praise. Oh, our hearts will cry, these bones will This morning, uh, yes, we do have some questions um, referring to uh, verse 2. And uh, verse 2 is more focusing about uh, Mary, a little bit about her testimony. And uh, kind of curious, I mean, why does the writer refer to Mary's story in, in chapter 12, but within you know, chapter 11, it's, it's kind of jumping the gun almost. story yet <laughs> so uh, it, it was mary who anointed the lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair he dreaded not lazarus to death he uh, he didn't know who I think that's a great response, especially referring to verse 2 and about Mary's testimony. Um, also, we do have a question uh, referring to verse 8 through 10, and I know that's a, a quite a bit of section right there um, referring to um, the disciples and uh, Christ kind of having a conversation back and forth with one another. And uh, so the, the main question for this area of passage, um, does Jesus know there's more than 12 hours in a day? 
like is is he illiterate or something? <laughs> so yeah, bring uh, you get to answer why they're not twelve hours in the day. Um, and the answer is no, because it's forbidden. But <laughs> you go on and you realize, okay, if anyone walks in midday, he goes into slumber, but if he sees no one in the world, anyone walking in the night, he slumbers but doesn't rise again. So you're speaking of day one. Are there not twelve hmm. hours? I would say that would be much more uh, making sense for sure uh, comparing to uh, the actual physical day hours and so um, most definitely. Um, oh, nice. All right. Can you all hear me now? So repeat question, would, would that be appropriate? Next question. Okay, um, so the next question is kind of tying in with the previous question. Apology if no one heard beforehand, um, but hopefully sound is much better at this moment. Uh, it's still referring to verse seven and eight, and uh, verse seven is going about saying, then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. And verse 8 says, Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews try to stone you, and you're going there again? And then if we jump all the way to verse 16, uh, then Thomas called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go to so that we may die with him. And so the question is pretty lengthy, forgive me, um, but it goes about uh, were the disciples actually being obedient, want, wanting to actually follow Christ at that moment, or were they like lacking hope and figuring, well, our rabbi, our teacher is about to die, and he, we've been following him, so uh, if he's about to die, we might as well die as well, because what is our purpose in life at this moment? So is it more of obedience or lack of faith? I just think they have Jesus' well-being in mind in that you realize that they were plotting your death before you left. That was part of why we left the area of Jerusalem and Judea is because they were seeking an opportunity to stone him and Jesus kept slipping away, slipping away. Um, but when his time has come, he won't slip away. And so they're wondering if, hey, if we go back, we're going right back into the hornet's nest and they may get you this time, Jesus. And Jesus is like, let's do it. And they're like, okay, well, we're with you even unto death. Now, well, we know that later on they will kind of chicken out, so to speak. 
Um, but at least at this point, they're like, okay, we're with him, I guess. But, yeah, I think they're just looking out for his well-being, trying to remind him that uh, that he's he's stepping into a dangerous situation and he may not escape this time. And actually that proves true. He won't escape this time. We do have about two more questions. Um, verse 25 and 27, and I'm going to flip my page right quick to make sure to read the verses. Um, verse 25 on through 27 is the conversation that Martha and Jesus are having with one another. And um, starting with verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Martha's response was, yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. However, we see further down um, within Scripture, we see in 39 and 40, um, Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench, um, Lazarus, um, because of his death, um, because he has been dead four days. In Jesus' response, Jesus said to her, Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So the, the question within this area is, uh, did Martha truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah? Or did she doubt his sovereignty or his ability to um, do anything miraculous like saving Lazarus if he already died? Um, I don't think so, because I don't think she knows that he's about to perform an actual resurrection in front of them. He's never done that before, um, and um, he he hints at that with the disciples, that he's going to go wake Lazarus, um, but, he, you know, Martha didn't hear that. So I think that Martha does believe in Jesus, does believe he's the resurrection of the light and life, but I think she's assuming, as as any of us would, that that's a resurrection at the end not necessarily it's coming immediately. So then all of a sudden it's like, well, open up the tomb. Like, Jesus, like, we may not want to do that because I don't think she understands. She, I think she believes. I think she genuinely believes. I just don't think she thinks he's going to do a resurrection right then and there. And uh, I think she's reasonable to think that. You know, he only did it once, and um, there was no real indication um, uh, for sure there. So, yeah, I think... But I do think he does in verse 40 kind of gently tell her, did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? I'm going to give you a gift unlike anything you've ever seen before here. And then I'm going to let you be the one who experiences this miracle now. You know, and what a what a what a amazing thing that God would give that to her. So so no, I don't think that she's I think she is genuinely believing. She just doesn't totally understand what all Jesus is going to do. And I think that's reasonable. So. The last question, and it's really uh, just kind of focused on my modern day. Uh, so uh, imagine a, a lot of us uh, as followers of Christ, those who put their faith and trust in Christ as a Lord and Savior and repented of their sins and want to live obediently for Christ. Um, how, how do we go about our lives when we might struggle in the area, kind of like Martha did, maybe not as severe, um, having a, a relative die and but um, how, how do we continue uh, to follow Christ uh, when we have times that we doubt um, maybe God's sovereignty? 
Well, um, I think I think that we're called to do what Martha did. I think she gives a great example here of run to Jesus. And she expresses, Jesus, if you had been here, like, what are you doing? And I think that's totally okay. I think we see that in Psalms all the time. In Psalm 13, one of my favorites is, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Um, lest I sleep the sleep of death. But then the last four verses of that Psalm go, Yet I put my trust in him. And, you know, so it's glorious. You see that in the Psalms over and over again where there is great doubt and pain expressed to God. And yet almost in the middle of that, maybe even by means of that, it's turned around to faith. So I think we follow Mary and Martha's um, example there. Now Martha runs, and I'm not sure Mary stays back. So I wonder if, if she either doesn't know Jesus is coming or maybe she's just like, I don't know the one I want to talk to Jesus right now. Maybe. But both eventually, in their own way, in their own time, Jesus does draw near, and they both do express their frustration at the situation, and yet they both are like, you have the words of life, we're going to trust you anyway. So uh, I don't have an easy answer for any one particular situation, but I do think that generally we see they run to Jesus, they're willing to hear his word, and you know they know that he loves them, and so he's, they're going to trust him. And, and Jesus asks for their trust even before he's going to raise Lazarus. You know, he asks her to believe that he's the resurrection of the life before he's actually like demonstrated that. And sometimes that's the case. Sometimes we're believing in God's promises before we actually see them. And that's normal. (laughs) So I could list lots of evidences in scripture where that's the case, where God calls us to believe in his word before we're able to fully see how it's going to work out. So, all right. So now I'm going to ask you, I'm going to go ahead and just give you two questions so we don't have to pass the mic back and forth, but I'm going to ask you to share your testimony very briefly here. Tell us how you grew up, came to Christ, and then also the second one is um, how are you serving the Lord now? Where do you see him leading you in terms of your service to him? I appreciate that. And um, so, yes, uh, my part of my testimony, um, I I grew up in in the South, um, probably by my accent. You could kind of tell I'm not from around here. And so uh, in the Bible Belt, uh, I, I was capable of uh, going to uh, different churches, really. Uh, I didn't know the, the importance of uh, a true relationship with Christ as a Lord and Savior. Um, it was more of the Christian title thing to do is to go to church, be a part of a youth ministry on Wednesday nights, and then um, to go about um, living in a way and manner um, more legalistic and to appear as uh, I was something that I was not. And so the Lord made that known to me. Um, After I graduated high school, I was going through a terrible time, to be honest, Um, complete depression, um, even to the fact of uh, suicidal. Um, I, I did not care about my life at all. I thought I was a, um, a failure uh, to my family, friends. If only people truly knew who I was, my, my identity, um, would they truly say that I would be their friend or their son or even brother. And so um, I'm truly grateful tonight that I thought about committing suicide. Uh, God intervened. He stopped me um, from crashing into a tree, uh, back roads. And he used a, a great individual um, through the campus ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, I believe they're called Crew now. But um, I was able to go 2010, uh, the summer of 2010, to Canada, um, been part of a uh, Northwoods project. 
um, for that um, campus ministry, and just great God-fearing men um, invested time in me and uh, shared a poignance of what the gospel was. And so um, God called me to himself, uh, I believe it was July the 2nd, uh, around there, and literally, um, not just emotions, not just knowledge, but truly, um, I, I knew God um, intervened and saved me, not physically, but spiritually, and made known to me of the importance of his saving grace. And so uh, I completely put my faith and trust in Christ as my Lord and Savior that night, repenting of my sins, and literally I felt uh, the luggage, the old identity, my old clothing literally fall from me. And now, as God's Word says in Second Corinthians 5.17, how will we become a new creation? The old has passed away. And so um, I truly have uh, faith and hope in Christ, and, and I want to live for Him and honor Him. Um, through um, the rest of my life, um, unless he comes back beforehand. <laughs> so um, at this time, um, right now, uh, I moved up from Arkansas to uh, South Dakota uh, to be part of a ministry program called um, Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship. Um, right now, just taking classes as if I was going to seminary and uh, been very blessed to learn more of uh, God's word, um, more of the character of God and uh, just different various areas of doctrine. And I'm very grateful that uh, God was able to teach and still is teaching me right now, continue to help me, um, um, continue to rely on him more and just to appreciate and give him praise more every day of um, his saving grace and just to give him glory. Um, after the TPA, if not, um, however that's going to look in the near future, um, right now I'm thinking about going to Alaska, um, part of a ministry that I was associated back in 2011 through 2014. And they do have a camp program manager position there. And so right now, um, yes, uh, going through the process, uh, application and um, interacting with um, the HR as well as account director uh, for this position. So uh, God willing, if he allows this to take place and happen, um, I will be able to interact uh, with summer staff, full-time staff, um, and of course the campers and be able to um, evangelize, uh, to disciple, and um, the position really helps out um, to interact with uh, local churches all throughout the state of Alaska, interacting with the pastors and making sure that students or campers would have a great um, healthy churches that they will be associated with um, so that they too may hear the gospel for the first time, if not grow further into relationship with Christ. And so um, at this time, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how God um, goes about and uh, have all the faith and confidence that it's going to be good either way. So. Thank you for your uh, service in our church, and we'll pray as the Lord leads you there. So thank you for helping me out today. Yep. All right, well, sorry about the microphone. Um, hopefully we'll get that remedied, but uh, I do want to close with a benediction. Uh, thanks for hanging in there with us on this live stream today. Let us know if there's any way that we can uh, serve you, uh, pray for you, reach out to you in any way, um, and and uh, we would we would love to do that. So here is our benediction. It actually comes from our sermon text this morning, John eleven twenty five and twenty six. 
Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I hope that those words ring in your heart and in your mind throughout the day and this week, and that you'll be, you could say yes, like Martha did, to that question, and that Jesus is your resurrection in life. God bless you, and we hope to see you soon.